13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I shall raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. You'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in men. Let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning, God, that you would Speak to us, reveal yourself to us in your word. God, I pray that as I come and speak today, that I pray that it's your voice that we hear. God, I pray lead us and guide us into truth, and I pray that when you do that, I pray that that truth would not leave us unchanged, but God, that you would convict our hearts, show us who you are, and who we are today. I pray that we'll leave here rejoicing in all that you've done and who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this morning, so we are picking back up in the story of John. And if you remember, last week, uh, excuse me, last time we were in John, which was two weeks ago, last time we were in John, we were talking about this story of when Jesus was at a wedding feast. And when he was at the wedding feast, uh, they had a big problem that needed fixing. And, and Jesus rose to the challenge and he showed his disciples uh, who he was. And he showed them his power and his authority. And by changing uh, many, many gallons of water into gallons of wine. And uh, now we kind of change gears here a little bit, and he calls our attention to the fact that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. There's been a time transition, hasn't there? There was a, a time when, it, when John was saying, and the next day we did this, and the following day he did that, and then the next day he went and did here, and now we have a little bit of break in time, and so he says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So we've experienced a little bit of a jump in time. The Passover, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, if you're going to read it in a few different places, it was on the 14th day of the first month for the Jews on their calendar. Only unleavened bread was eaten for seven days following the Passover, and this was really 
to reflect the fact that during the first Passover, when the people were in Egypt, you remember that they had to mark their doorpost of their house with the blood, and when the Spirit came and saw the blood, it would pass over their house, and it would not kill the firstborn son for the plague, and, but it came to all the people in Egypt, and all of their firstborn died, including their cattle, but not so for Israel. God passed over them, and so they're celebrating the Passover. They're celebrating when this happened, and so the unleavened bread, evidently, is very symbolic of the fact that during that time, they didn't, have peop- they didn't have time to put leaven in their bread before God told them to leave. And so they're reflecting on that and remembering the Passover by eating the unleavened bread that they had to do it in haste. They had to leave. And so they didn't have time to make their bread a certain way. And so they remember that. It's a very significant point for John that he references three different Passovers throughout the Gospel of John. Okay, the earthly ministry of Jesus, remember, was about three years. So three Passovers would have taken place, right? John records all three Passovers in his gospel. The first Passover we find here, John 2. The second one we find in John 6. The third one we find in John 11. Three different records of a Passover. This one is happening on the first of three Passovers. That's significant to kind of how the plot unfolds and how we understand the story, okay? So this is the first of three Passovers during Jesus' earthly ministry. Deuteronomy 16, 16, and 17. Listen to what it says. Three times a year your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one. The Feast of Weeks, two. And the Feast of Booth, three. Three different times a year you shall appear before the Lord. Right? That's what it said. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So when the Passover of the Jews was at hand, that was one of three times a year that they had to come present themselves before the Lord. And when they presented themselves before the Lord, you better not come empty-handed, but you need to bring something to the Lord. You need to bring an offering. You need to bring a sacrifice. You need to bring something to present to your God. Okay? So... As Jesus comes to the temple as a good Jew, which we know he was, he came to the temple during the Passover and presented himself to the Lord. And when he came, he was shocked by what he saw. Instead of finding worshipers who were devoted to God, he found something very different. And it did not settle well with him. Look at the next verse here. So it says, The Passover of the Jews is at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers were there. Okay, stop right there. I want to show you a picture. Here's a representation of what the temple would have looked like at that time, the temple mount. Okay? Okay. You see on either side there are uh, two little places, and then there's uh, another court and then a little building. Of course, that... That little building is the actual temple. It's where the Holy of Holies is located, right? That was the holy place. Okay, so there's walls to get. You can't even get to the Temple Mount without walls. And then there's another wall with more courtyards. Now, I'm going to show you, uh, there's an area highlighted in green here. These two areas was the Gentiles' courtyard. Okay, this was a place specific for them. They were not allowed to go beyond those bounds, Okay, there was a courtyard for women uh, up there in the smaller square. There was a courtyard for some other things. There was a a place for the priest. There was a place to store things. 
Um, and, but the Gentiles weren't allowed in there. So most believe that when Jesus came to the temple, he was on the temple mount in the Gentiles' courtyard, which is where this took place. Okay? So Jesus comes up. He, there's actually some covered... You see that red roof there? It's long. Just outside of that, there's two little buildings. Those are covered stairways. So you would come up into the Gentiles' courtyard through those little stairways right there. So this is where Jesus came from, and he looks around, and what does he see? In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. Now think about it. Is there anything wrong with the fact that there were people selling oxen and sheep, pigeons, and, and there were money changers? In that fact itself, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, most people believe that they were selling all these things. The money changers were there, but they were outside the temple until just recently. And they said, well, why don't we actually move a little closer to where business is done? Let's go up into the Temple Mount. And so they changed where they were located and selling these things and changing their money. Now, people came from all over. If you were going to offer the Lord a sacrifice, let's say a lamb, were you going to bring that lamb with you on a three-day journey? No, you wouldn't bring it with you. You would wait till you got there, and then you would buy one. And so that's why these people were there. They were offering a service, and is that service inherently bad that they were offering? No, it wasn't, and that's really important. What the service they were offering was not necessarily a bad service. It was necessary. Now, the way they were conducting business, that's a different story. Something about this, though, triggered Jesus to do some pretty harsh things, and we probably need to figure out what that is so that maybe we don't make that same mistake. There is something called the Mishnah. It's a collection of Jewish oral law. A lot of things were passed down orally. And uh, for many, many years, the only way you could understand this was orally. It was passed down from person to person. There was nothing written, no, no book that you could say, here is the oral law, But because it's the oral law after all. But after some time, they recorded it down in, in writing. And in that, um, it says specifically, that when you make an offering to the Lord during the Passover, you need to offer during the, there was two different offerings. During the appearance offering, you had to offer one piece of silver. During the festival offering, you had to offer two pieces of silver. And they were particular coins that you had to offer. That's what the oral law said. Now remember, the oral law is not scripture. It was tradition. So by tradition, by the oral law, they had to offer these particular silver coins. So they would come from another place. They would arrive. Did they have those particular silver coins in their pocket? No. So what did they have to do? They had to exchange their money. So this is what the money changers were doing. They were taking their money, exchanging it out for what was proper, according to tradition, to offer the Lord during Passover. I hope this makes sense. The reason these people were here was not bad. All these services were actually necessary for all the people who would be coming to offer, uh, to give their offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. Now, the problem is that they were in a place where they shouldn't be, and the services they were offering um, were not good. Now, we're going to look in, in, into more of that in, in just a second. Okay, look at verse 15. Okay, so he sees these people here, and immediately something 
triggers him as this is very wrong and I'm going to do something about it. And here's what he does. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins and money changers. He overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember what it was written when it said, zeal for your house will consume me. There are three different sets of people here. The first group of people is those selling the sheep and the oxen. Okay, that's the first group of people. And what did he do to them? He made a whip of cords. Probably the ropes, it's, the word is rope, um, but it's probably the ropes that when you would buy something, they would sell you a rope along with it so you could lead them out. So there were probably a bunch of these laying around. And so Jesus got some of them and he fashioned a whip and he started cracking it to drive out the animals and likewise drove out the people selling those animals. Okay, so that's what he did with the whip. Now, the second group of people was the money changers. What did he do to them? He didn't drive them out with a whip. Okay, the whip is over. I know most of the time we think Jesus is just around whipping people and everything. It's not what happened. He did that for a reason to drive their animals out, right? Then he turned over the money changers' tables, and so you can imagine the money went everywhere. So you take their goods, flip them over, and those people are scattered, right? Take the animals, drive them out, and the people have to chase after them. And then he told those selling the pigeons, take these things away. Okay, so those are the three groups of people. All right, the people selling the animals. Uh, second group of people is the money changers. Third group of people is the people selling the pigeons for the poor folk. All right? If you couldn't afford anything else, you could at least buy a pigeon. All right? And the law said you could do that. So that's why they were there selling the pigeons. Now, the question we have, does, did Jesus overreact here? Because let's just imagine what's happening. He comes up and he sees this, and he, and he immediately starts whipping, driving the animals out. The people run away. He, he, imagine, there's a table filled with coins, and Jesus grabs the table and flips it over. Can you imagine? Dwayne walks into a room, and there are coins all over here, and there's somebody offering a service of exchanging money. And Dwayne doesn't like what he sees. And he grabs the table and he flips it over. Just imagine the scene that that would cause. What would you think about Dwayne? You're crazy. You're overreacting. You're angry. Somebody needs to do something about Dwayne. You'd be scared of Dwayne. You've got to admit that if you were to see this happen, it would be bizarre. And you would want to think there's something wrong with this guy. So the natural question that we should ask is, did Jesus overreact here? Did Jesus overreact? We automatically have to say, no, but I feel like he did. I know he didn't, but I feel like he did. Isn't that kind of how we think about it? I know that he didn't because Jesus is perfect after all. So what's the situation here? Why did he feel it necessary to do that? I want you to see three things in what Jesus did here just very quickly. You can see the justice you can see authority, and you can see also mercy. I want to, just those three things. You can see his justice in that he comes up, and what does he witness? He witnesses people selling animals. Nothing wrong with that. But they were selling animals in a place that was meant to be his father's house, and they turned it into a house of trade, it is literally a house of business. Why are you conducting business where worship is called for? Why are you conducting business when there should be worship? 
I hope this is kind of resonating with you in how much the church has become a business rather than a place of worship. That is so simple. It's so simple. So first of all, we see Jesus' justice on the situation. But we also see the authority of Jesus in that who is Jesus to come into the temple and to cleanse it, right? Most of your headings in your text says the cleansing of the temple, right? Or Jesus cleanses the temple, something like that. He comes and he cleanses it. He, he deals with the evil and he purges it. He gets, a, he, he gets rid of it. Who is he to do this? Who is Jesus? Well, don't you think that's probably the very question he wanted the people to ask? Who are you to do this? And, and pretty soon, actually, they do ask that. And he says, what sign are you going to show us that you are from God? Because you're not part of the Jewish leaders, right? You have no, no authority here as an individual, as a person. So you must then be sent from God because this is God's place after all. And you're calling God your father. So what sign would you show us that you are actually from God himself? And he tells them. But before we move on to that, I want to also see Jesus' mercy here. I never saw this before. I started looking deeply into the text, but... Jesus could have done worse things, and I think where we most see it is when he goes to those who are selling the pigeons, what does Jesus do? He says, take these out of here. This is not where they should be. What, what could he have done? He could have knocked over the cages, opened the doors, and let all the birds fly away. Now, he didn't kill the cattle. He didn't kill the people. It doesn't say that he hurt anybody or anything. It doesn't say that it actually doesn't even imply that. Jesus didn't hurt anybody. Okay, but what he did do was make sure that the people understood that this is not a place of business. This is a place of worship. Okay, now you might be remembering different wording. You might be remembering when Jesus said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of robbers. Do you remember that wording? Does that wording kind of resonate with you? That's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke account a different situation here. And I, what I'm going to suggest to you this morning, and this is a, a little bit technical, but I think relates. But I believe, after studying this passage, that there are actually two different accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. Um, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, if you're familiar with either of those names, they, they believe this too. When you look at Jesus cleansing the temple in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it happens during the triumphal entry, which is in the third Passover. What Passover account are we looking at? The first Passover account. Also, there is no whip of cords in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He, only, he drove out those who sold and those who bought, but no animals in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says this is supposed to be a house of prayer, not a den of robbers. But what we can be assured of is that whether there's one account or two, which I think there's two, whether there's two or whether there's one, Jesus was upset about the same thing both times or in two different accounts. Isaiah 56, 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings or sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The temple was to be holy to God. The temple was to be a place of worship, 
The temple was to be a place where the people would come and give of themselves to the Lord. And what were the people there doing? They were selling animals for profit. And it was insane profit, according to some historians. They were selling, example, if you've ever been to a theme park and you get thirsty, you better just wait. Because what I could buy at Walmart for a dollar, you're charging $7 for. Why? Because you're at a theme park, it's about the location, right? You need it, you need it right now, okay, you can buy it here or you can go back home and buy it, right? And so they had animals for sale, you can buy it right here, right now, or you can go back home and get your own. What will it be? So they were making tons of profit. Tons of profit. And that's the reason that they were there. The reason that these people were selling these animals was that, yeah, it was a necessary thing, but they were, they were making profit. And that's, that's the reason they existed. The same thing with the money changers. I need this dollar exchange for whatever. I say, okay, I'll do it, you know, 50% charge on it. So we'll exchange it for you, but it's, it's a business here. We're here to make money. And what better place could you go to do that than right there, right before it happens? So you understand why they were there, but you also understand why Jesus was mad about it. This is not a place of business. This isn't a place for you to come and make money. This is not about you. This is about God, and you have totally messed it up. And you better believe that I am not going to stand for it. And so Jesus does something about it. Because he had zeal for the house of God. That needs to stick with you. Because when we get to a little bit of application here in just a moment, that's going to be very important that we remember that. Okay, let's look on in the text. Verse 18, what happens next? Okay, so that whole scene is kind of over. You can imagine all the animals running around and people going pray. You know that we would have, most of us, been the people that are just standing to the side and being like, oh, that was what, did you see what he just did? You know, and they're talking about, oh, who is that guy? I don't know. We, we would have just been standing around and, and, you know, talking about the situation. But the Jews came up to him, those guys who were in charge, you know, the people who actually had authority there. They went up to Jesus and they said, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Stop right there. In order for someone to make a public display like that in a place where they have no authority would be uncalled for. If Jesus were to do that, but he didn't have the authority to do so, it would have been inappropriate. The thing, though, is did Jesus have authority to do what he did? Yes, he did. So this was a public display of the authority of Jesus. This is what he wanted the people to see. This is my father's house, and it will not happen. You want authority, that's my authority. I'm the son of God. Probably can't have any more than that. He says, okay, you want to sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it. Just very quickly, there were three temples in Jewish history. Kind of two, but three. The first temple was built under Solomon's rule, 957, 586 B.C., 
586 B.C. is when it was destroyed. We're learning about that in Isaiah right now. The people are scared of the Assyrian threat. They don't realize the Babylonians are coming. It's going to be much worse. Yet, that's where we're at in Isaiah. But soon, the year 586, they're going to destroy the temple. And they're going to be taken into captivity. No more temple. Where do they offer sacrifices to the Lord? They don't have a place. So 586, that's destroyed. So the people are released and under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 515 to 522, there is a new temple, okay? But it's built with cheaper materials because these people, after all, have been in captivity for a long time. They don't have a whole lot of money or resources. They also don't have the Ark of the Covenant anymore, which is a big deal. So in this second temple, it was, you know, kind of like our building in a sense, where it's like, you know, there's nothing fancy going on here. Let's not, let's not pretend. Um, but you know what? It's a place, okay? We have a place. It's not fancy, but it's a place. That's what the second temple was like, okay? So then Herod the Great said, let's revamp this temple and make it something great, okay? So that's what he did. So in 22 BC, um, they started construction or kind of a refurbishing of that temple, and then so he says 46 years it's taken to do this. So it started in 22 BC. 46 years after that would have landed at 20 in AD 24. Okay? So if you're looking for a time when this happened, it's about AD 24. Okay? Um, this temple was not officially finished until about the year 64. And then it was destroyed again in the year 70. And there has been no temple since. Okay, so three, kind of two, but three temples. Okay, so they're in the, the final phase of this last temple, and he says, okay, we've taken 46 years to build this temple, to refurbish this temple, get it to where it is today. You're telling me that it, you, it can be destroyed, and you're going to raise it back up in three days. Well, he says, yes, that's what I said. But what they didn't understand, of course, was that he was speaking about the temple of his body. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put uh, away from before you, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so who is Jesus in this situation? He's proving himself to be the one who would come and sit on the throne of David, saying, I have authority to do these things. And also, that great temple that you're looking for, you don't realize that it's been established in me right now. I'm, I'm actually what you're looking for, not a building. I'm more important. I am the one. I am the one who will go to the true Holy of Holies and offer a perpetual sacrifice of myself and stand as your high priest forever. Don't you see that all this was pointing towards me? And you're concerned about this building? You don't understand. Okay, but he says, destroy this temple, and it'll be, I'll raise it back up in 3.8. By the way, who raised it? He did. How did he raise it? I thought God raised it. He did because he is God. And he's saying, I am God, and I will raise myself. Now look at verse 23. Now, when he heard it, when, when, he, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, the signs are not recorded. 
We don't know what signs he was doing. They're not recorded right here. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, what a strange way to end that passage of scripture. It seems completely out of place and really odd wording. What is Jesus talking about here? I think it's really important to see that there's a couple words translated here for us that we might not know are actually the same word um, because context, um, for us in English, it, it some say that it makes more sense. I would say it makes more sense this way. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not believe in them. That's actually what it says. Many believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Same wording used. Why? Because he himself knew all people. He knew all of them. He needed no one to bear witness about man. He knew what was in man. He said, Jesus, I believe in you. And Jesus would look and say, no, you don't. You don't need to come and say something to me. I, I already know what's going on in there. So I did a sign, I did a work, and you think it was great, and momentarily you're all caught up in that, and you think I, I'm just this great miracle worker, and so you believe in me. You believe I can work miracles, but you do not believe that I am the Savior. So although they believed in him, he did not believe in them. I have a quote here from John Kelvin I thought was great. Listen to this. It says, Christ knew the very roots of the trees, but except from the fruits which appear outwardly, we cannot discover what is the nature of any one tree. Here's what he means by that. Jesus looked and he saw the roots that were buried underground. He knew what it was. All we can do is look and, and, and we see a tree and we look for fruit. Does it have any fruit? I don't know. We're looking for fruit. But Jesus knows it from its foundation. So it is with people. Jesus knows people from their very foundation. All we can do is look and see, are they bearing fruit of a Christian? I kind of. What kind of fruit is this? I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I see a fruit and I don't know what it is. Does that happen to anybody else in this room? I see something. It could even be at Walmart. I, what is this thing? I don't even know what that is. Is it, a, is it like, is it an apple? Because it feels fuzzy. So it's probably not an apple. Sometimes we don't know what it is that we're seeing. Sometimes we, we don't rightly understand the fruit that people are giving off. It's confusing. But Jesus himself knows the very root and foundation of all people. He knows what is in man. I want to summarize what we've said this way, and we're going to lead in just a few points of application this morning. Here's what I want you to walk away with from that story. By his own authority as the divine king, which he proved himself to be, Jesus demands purity of worship. He will not tolerate corruption and cannot be fooled by imposters. I want to offer a couple points of application here. It's a simple story, isn't it? What should we understand from it? How should it make us any different? How should I be changed by that story? Let's look at a couple things. Number one, <laughs> believers are the temple of God. You probably know that, but let's be reminded of that this morning because being the temple of God has severe consequences for you and for me this morning if Jesus truly does have zeal for his Father's house. 1 Corinthians 3.16 
Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Okay, again, that's 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 17. Okay, how, what makes us the temple of God? The fact that the spirit of God resides in you. There is the presence of God in you. That spirit that used to dwell, and they couldn't touch, they couldn't approach it, they were afraid. Well, that spirit is living in you, living in you. You are the temple of God. You realize the significance of that? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. You are the dwelling place of God if you have had faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have had genuine faith in Jesus Christ, repentant of your sins, then the Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. The very Spirit of God lives, dwells in you, and you become a temple of God. Unbelievable. But you say, but yeah, I don't feel very special. I don't feel like a temple of God. I feel like a human and a bad one. Yeah. Luckily, that's a sign that the Spirit of God actually is dwelling in you because he's showing you how bad you truly are. There are some who live this life who never think, I am I'm scum, I'm nothing compared to God. You know why? Because it's the Spirit of God that reveals that to you. That is a comforting feeling to have true godly sorrow and regret for who you are. But also with that, we need to remember that there is no building that is God's house. You are God's house. So I, I remember when I, when I, took my very first job as a, as a, as a youth pastor, um, and I lived in a parsonage. And the parsonage was right directly, I can't stress this enough, right directly next to the church. I mean, I'm talking, how many feet was it? Ten feet? Yeah. I mean, the parking lot or the, the driveway for the house touched the church. I mean, it was right next to the church. Okay. So I remember we had moved in, and we had only been there, gosh, a couple of days. And, of course, I was nervous already because, you know, it was my first time doing anything in ministry, you know, by, by myself. And so every little thing I did, I was, I was really, really nervous about. And so a guy came up to the house, knocked on the door. I opened the door, and uh, a guy I had never seen. Now, I had met the people at the church, you know, meet and greet stuff. I had met everybody. Guy comes to the door. I had never seen this guy before. He says, um, I wonder if you could let me in uh, to the church so I can go in there and pray at God's house. I wanted to do the right thing here. Okay? New guy on the block coming over to the parsonage. You know, ah, man, I was torn about what to do. I didn't know this guy. He didn't have a key. Eventually, I, I, I said, I'm sorry. I'm just not going to be able to let you in. I, I understand. He said, but, oh, I just, I really, you're not going to let me pray to God? You're not going to let me in, in God's house to pray? It was a weird situation, but 
you know, letting somebody who I had never seen before, who was really big and, and threatening, actually, um, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't trust that. But here, here's the point is that I think sometimes you, we still have that mentality that when we walk in the church doors that, you know, something special is happening here in the sense that God's presence is more here than it is here. Do you know that when we gather together, this is a special grace of God that he has given us? And is God here among us? Without a doubt. But is God also with you when you walk out the door? Is God's spirit dwelling in you when you sleep? Is God dwelling in you even as Jonah had experienced momentarily that God can even be with you when you are in the belly of a fish in the ocean? You can't get any more removed than that. But was God there? God does not dwell in buildings made with human hands. How can you contain the God of the universe? But he did something special for Israel, didn't he? But now he has done something special for us. And he has made his spirit to dwell inside of each of us as a temple of God. That's a special thing, and you need to remember that. Is this God's house? Is this God's house? No. I want you to be more confident in that answer because I know that you probably thought it was a trick question. Okay? Is this building God's house? Is this God's house? Is that God's house? Yes. If God's spirit dwells in you, you are God's house. You understand? You are God's house. Now, this has, this has some ramifications here, okay? If I am now God's temple and Jesus walks up on me, what might happen? That's the question. Number two, as the temple of God, which I am and you are, should God's spirit be dwelling in you, Jesus will not stand for corruption and will cleanse you. And sometimes it may be very harsh. Does zeal for God's house still consume him? What do you think? Did it once consume him, and now it doesn't anymore? That was, like, that was when he was younger. He was real passionate and zealous, you know, that, Jesus, that young Jesus, you know? Or is he still zealous for his house? Is he still zealous for the place that God's spirit resides? So is he zealous over you? Yes. He is. How do we see this play out? Just a couple references here. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened through the curtain through his flesh. So how do we enter into the presence of God? By a new way, by a new and living way that he opened through his flesh. Since we have great, a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Pure. In one sense, you are perfectly cleansed. That is, when God looks at you, you are justified in his sight, that all your sins have been paid for, all the penalty for your sins have been paid for if you have genuine faith in Christ. This isn't a blanket statement true for everybody in the world. So in one sense, you are cleansed. The blood of Jesus washes you. True. But in another sense, you are being cleansed today. There are 
this is the same understanding as you are sanctified and yet you are being sanctified. Have you come to understand this yet? I see my position as sanctified, justified, cleansed, but yet daily I live being sanctified, being cleansed by the Spirit of God, being perfected, coming into the maturity of Christ every day. 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is, the truth is not in us. So we have sin. We have to recognize that. But then also we have to recognize that when we confess our sins, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So there is a continual cleansing happening now, daily life. But there is a type of cleansing that has occurred in the past when you were justified that doesn't need to happen again. When you die, even in some sinful action, you did something you shouldn't have done. If you had genuine faith in Christ, then you are cleansed and purified even though you had no chance to make up for what you did because that would be earning your own salvation, which you can't do. So when you have faith in Christ, all your sins are paid for past, present, future. Right? But yet daily we live with consequences of our sins, not as punishment, not as penalty, but as discipline. Thank you. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So the discipline of God comes on us for what reason? To cleanse us, to sanctify us, to purify us. Who is he purifying? The ones who are already pure. That may be a little bit confusing. That might become more clear to you over time. But I want you to understand that through faith in Jesus Christ, you are pure before God. And you are justified. You are saved. You are redeemed. But you are not perfect. Only God is perfect. And you are becoming different every day as his spirit sanctifies you. When Jesus comes in and his spirit dwells in you in that temple, is he going to leave it filthy, dirty, sinful? Is he going to leave it that way? Or is he going to come in and make a change? And sometimes when you don't get the picture, can he be harsh? But does he ever do anything inappropriate or does he ever overreact? He does not because he is God. And who are you to answer back to God? <laughs> Try that. See what happens. I don't know. Can we question God and say, God, why are you doing this? I bow to your will. Yes, questioning God is different than judging God. Okay? Now, corporately, I want to say this as well. The church is not the place where you come to buy a product called Jesus and sample it. We should not be in the business of selling a Jesus to the world. Some people are going to buy it and fool themselves. Some people are going to say, how do, you, how do you sell Jesus, for example, you might be asking. You sell Jesus by saying, if you come to Jesus, your life will be better. Come to Jesus and your financial problems will be solved. Come to Jesus and you won't be sick anymore. Come to Jesus and it'll fix your marriage. Come to Jesus and it'll make your kids better. That would be unbelievable. I don't know, that hasn't happened yet. But come to Jesus and he'll do this for you. That is selling Jesus, trying to make him attractive to you. 
Let me tell you, the word of the cross is foolishness to the world. And we, unfortunately, try to make it unfoolish. We try to make it more attractive to the world. And in doing that, we are selling something. We have turned the church into a business selling a product. And that is not who we are. I just want to reference one more thing here in this point. <coughs> Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And listen to what we should do in response. Let us, therefore, offer acceptable worship to God with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. <coughs> just because you think something is okay and God would be okay with it doesn't mean it's acceptable worship to God. There have been... <laughs> Uh, so many things that I've seen that people say I do it. Well, I think God, God would be okay with that. I think God enjoys that. I want you to show me that he enjoys, because he's revealed himself to us, actually. He's revealed his character. He's revealed who, who he is, okay? I want you to show me, either by specific example or by character reference, show me that, that God would be pleased with that. If you can't do it, that is unacceptable worship. Not anything you conceive in your mind is acceptable worship to God. Okay? It needs to be filtered through what our scriptures say about worshiping God. Do you remember when those sons offered this strange fire on the altar and they were judged for that because they did not worship God acceptably? We offer acceptable worship to God, not just anything you conceive in your mind. Number three. There's only four. Number three. As a temple of God, believers are still required to offer sacrifices. I like this point. Believers are still required to offer sacrifices, but the sacrifices are not what once were offered, but they are a new type of sacrifice. What are the sacrifices that we are required? And when I say required, it doesn't mean required for salvation. It means that you who are saved are now required to do something in response. And you should be doing it. 1 Peter 2.5. I'm going to give you just two references for this. 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are to offer what kind of sacrifice? A spiritual sacrifice to God. Well, what kind of thing might that be? Anything I conceive as spiritual. That could be a lot of weird, crazy stuff but it's not acceptable worship to God. But it is spiritual. Although it may have a physical element to it, the reason the physical element exists is a spiritual nature. The other reference is Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through him then, let us continually <coughs> offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So it's a spiritual sacrifice, and it's also a sacrifice of praise that does what? The fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Of course, it's not just, I acknowledge Jesus. Because some people said that to Jesus just recently in this story. And they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them because he knew what was actually in them. Right? Do not neglect, this is verse 16, do not neglect to do what is good, but to share, with, share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So there's an example. There's an example right there of a spiritual sacrifice that God requires of believers now. 
Okay, it says continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. When were they required to offer sacrifices? Continually? No, but only on certain occasions to go up to the temple. Now, should you go up to the temple? Do you need to bring something with you? Should you go empty-handed? No, you better not go empty-handed. But whenever you find yourself in the presence of God, you ought to bring something of worship. Now, let me ask you this question. How often do you find yourself in the presence of God? All the time. So how often should we be offering a sacrifice? Continually. Because you are continually in the presence of God. You are continually presenting yourself in the temple of God. That's unbelievable. So we ought to be continually offering sacrifice to God. But our sacrifices we offer are spiritual sacrifices. And an example is given. Do not neglect to share what you have. For such sacrifices, giving us the implication that there are other types of sacrifices. So such sacrifices, sacrifices like these, are the types of spiritual sacrifices that God requires of you and of me. Does zeal for God's house consume you? Are you concerned with the purity of God's temple? If you saw defilement in the temple of God, would you be willing to turn over the tables? Or sometimes do you look at the temple of God and you say, yeah, I know it's dirty and stuff is going on that shouldn't be, but not too worried about it. And I'd have to say that zeal for God's house doesn't consume you. But zeal for God's house certainly consumes our Savior. And he will be sure that you are not satisfied with that answer. Now, it may take discipline for you to get there. It may take life circumstances that you did not want. But the end goal is that all things work toward the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What that means is that God is going to work out your sanctification as you are working out your sanctification. God wants you to be cleansed. Finally, number four. Jesus knows all those who are his and superficial sacrifices do not fool him. Though people were flocking to him and they gave him praise of their lips, Jesus knew what was in man and did not believe them. John, four, uh, John 10, 14 and 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep. The sheep is going to be a common reference in the book of John, which is why I want you looking at sheep every time I'm talking about the gospel of John. Because those who have faith in Christ and are the temple of God are his sheep, and he is our shepherd. And who does he know? That is, who does he commune with? Those who are his, his sheep. He knows all those who are his. 1 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3. If anyone imagines that he knows something when he does not know yet as he ought. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, Jimmy read a passage earlier that said that God knows everyone's thoughts. Right? God knows everyone's thoughts before anybody, anybody, sheep or not, has a thought. Behold, God knows it all together. Can you keep anything from him? Can anybody keep anything from him? So what does it mean here that if anyone loves God, he is known by God? 
that he is known intimately by God and has a relationship as his sheep, as his children. He knows those who are his and he cares for them. And he, he keeps them together. His sheep. There are some who are not sheep. Scripture makes a distinction. There are some who are sheep. There are some who are not sheep. Anyone who has faith in Christ is a sheep of Christ. Superficial sacrifices do not fool him because he knows the intentions of your heart and he knows them all together. Does sometimes you do things and you don't know why you did them? Or is that just my own thing? <laughs> Am I the only one that does that? I do something and I don't know why I did it. Or I say something and I don't know why I said it. Does that happen to you? Okay, good. Thanks for the reassurance. I, uh, I do things that I don't intend to do, and you know, I don't even know the reason why I did it. Sometimes I walk into the kitchen and I say, listen, I don't know why I'm here. I don't, that happened to you, Ronald? That happens. I walk into the kitchen. I don't know why I'm there. I, sometimes I do things that I don't know why I do them. Sometimes I, I say things and, and, yeah, I don't know why I said that. If I really think about it, I, I wouldn't have said that at all, actually. But do you know that there is an intention that may be, be, it may be secret to you, but it is not secret to God. Even though you don't know or understand something, God knows it all together. Your intentions are more wicked than you actually think they are. <laughs> yeah. We, sometimes we, 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 we do things. And, and listen, it can even come down to this. When we were singing songs earlier in the worship service, do you know why you were singing? Were you actively engaged in singing, worshiping your God? Or was it a ritualistic act because that's what you do when you come to church? You may not know why you're doing what you're doing, but behold, God knows it all together. Or maybe why you give money, or maybe why you try to say nice and upbuilding things to someone, or give a gift to somebody, or whatever it might be. But you know that if you're not doing things acceptable to God in worship to Him that are clear in the intentions of your heart, are pure worship, you know, they're never going to be perfect still, but thank goodness that we have the Spirit of God, that we have Jesus continually living as our mediator. But when we do these things, sometimes we think that we are offering worship to God when in reality, we're not doing anything other than possibly offending our Savior by what we've done. You ever gotten a gift from somebody? And they say, oh, thanks, but I don't like it. Maybe you didn't say that out loud. Some of you would say that out loud, actually. <laughs> thanks for this gift. I don't like it, but thanks for the thought. Have you ever gotten a gift, though, that you really liked? And you asked the person, how did you know that I would like this? Because that's what makes it so much better. How did you know this about me? And has the person ever said, Oh, um, actually, I didn't pick it out. And you, know, you say, okay, well, that kind of makes it not so special anymore. 
even though I really like the gift, um, what really made it important and special to me is that you intentionally got me something that you knew I would like. It didn't happen by accident. Sometimes I think our worship, we think it can just happen by accident. I'm worshiping God. But what does God prefer is that we offer him a sacrifice of praise. We are thinking about what pleases him and not what pleases us. And we go out of our way to do what will please our Savior. Otherwise, if we think just by singing a song and the audible sound coming out of our mouth is what pleases God, Here's what Amos 5, 21 and 23 has to say. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Peace offerings, your fattened animals, I won't, I won't even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. I am the temple of God. God's spirit dwells in me. I should continually be thinking about what pleases my Savior, my God. And I need to give him what he has asked of me. Not what I think he wants. I don't need to do stuff by accident. I don't just need to be doing things because I think that might be something that God might like and my heart is not attached to it. Remember, our sacrifice is spiritual. So it proceeds from the heart. If you're doing something that's not proceeding from the heart in worship, you might as well not be doing that thing at all. I'm sorry to say that. If you're doing something that's not proceeding from the heart, it can't be worship to God. Now, it may help somebody. That's okay. But don't think that that's worship because it's not. But we ought to be those people who are continually living as we are standing in the very presence of God because we are. We are in the very presence of God every moment. And I, so I hope you remember that. As you sing, as you read your Bible, as you give of your money here, as you meet together in groups, as you pray, as you listen to sermons, as you, what, as you leave and you look at the floor and you see if you've left any kind of mess, all of these things corporately actually truly do matter not because this is the house of God but because this is the house of God and it goes with me wherever I go so I seek to continually offer up sacrifices of praise to him that's my attitude of life you've heard of a worship or a lifestyle of worship this is ultimately at the heart of what people are getting at with that comment okay we live daily giving ourselves to him. If any, this, is, this is such a good word. I read this this morning and laughed, actually. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Did you hear that? That needs to go on my refrigerator. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. That's pretty good. Sometimes we don't know, but we think we know. And what does this call for in our lives? Humility. Bowing before the Savior. And when do we do that? Wait till we get to church? No. No. Do we do it at church? You better believe it. 
but God is here. Even when you don't feel him, God is